This is a Stimulus Network podcast. Hello and welcome to Eureka Nerd. I am Will, and if I had a Patronus or Demon, depending on your children's fantasy series of choice, I think mine would be a Capybara. And I'm Leah, and if I also had one of those animal personifications, I'm pretty sure it would be a tabby cat. That follows. I mean, your Twitter bio is possibly an actual kitten. It's it's just a truth I've come to terms with. Hello and welcome to the show. We are recording this, I believe, at the same time as Crufts happening in Birmingham in England. That feels like where Crufts ought to be happening. They've got lots of places yeah. to put the dogs there. I'm pretty sure it's at the NEC. Mm-hmm. So... What wonderful timing, what pure serendipity that we have a bevy of animal-related science for you this episode. This wasn't even planned, there were just lots of good news about animals and stuff. Lucky us. Now, I don't want to say that your method of sampling is flawed here, necessarily, but it's possible that you think the stories are inherently more interesting because they're about animals. Just an idea. Sometimes you just like good news, you know? Admittedly, the news that we're starting with from the University of Helsinki might not be the best news for all the good boys out there, because apparently all the good boys out there might not all be good boys. This research seems to be taking the extraordinary position that dogs require training to fit alongside modern human life. Wait, really? They don't just turn up and behave exactly how you want? That's children you're thinking of. Mm, I'm not sure about that. I mean, we also have to train Roombas to figure out a room, so we can't exactly hold that against dogs either. A, they need training, and B, according to this press release, some of them have problem behaviours. What could these problem behaviours be? Mostly things that you would expect from dogs, like fearfulness of other dogs, or noise sensitivity, separation anxiety. That's right, if your dog doesn't love gunshots and being left alone for a long time? It's a problem dog, I guess. Now, the research group collected a data set of nearly 14,000 dogs. That's a lot of dogs. That's a lot of dog. And found that unwanted behaviour occurred in 73% of them. Noise sensitivity, for example, turns up in a third of that sample. And, I mean, that maybe suggests that it's just a, a dog thing. It's maybe just... How they are. Yeah, I'm not sure if I'd call fear of heights a problem behaviour. Some people, in fact, are really quite keen on the dogs not being in high places. And certainly not jumping from them. Mm. The unwanted behaviours they've singled out do seem to be broadly behaviours. If you happen to want a dog that likes the sound of thunder, likes climbing all over people, and wants to be up high... I think you don't want a dog. I think you want a mountain goat. They have other problems. <laughs> Goats are problems. I mean, yes, a goat would solve those problems. You would also gain the additional problem of having all your clothes eaten. But milking. Pass. Now, one of the authors, a doctoral candidate at the University of Helsinki named Miller Salonen, says, We discovered an interesting connection between impulsivity, compulsive behaviour, and separation anxiety. In humans, obsessive-compulsive disorder, OCD, often occurs together with attention deficit and hyperactive disorder, ADHD. But this is the first time the same has been seen in dogs. Now, I don't think they are as such 
diagnosing dogs with OCD and ADHD because diagnosing a dog with OCD would be wild. Oh, the dog's you... obsessive about this stick. I throw the stick away and just keeps bringing the stick to me. He needs to let go of the stick. <laughs> he just, he has to check that all of the sockets are turned off three times before he can leave the house. <laughs> dogs don't have the same neuroses as human beings, is my point. But they have discovered a connection between fearfulness and aggressive behaviour. The impulsivity and separation anxiety. Now, some dogs may have more of these neuroses than others. Some dogs, admittedly, are selectively bred and trained to perform certain roles because human beings are A, like that, and B, have things that we need animal companions to do. But that seems to have also then kind of built in some of the unwanted behaviours in certain breeds of dogs more than it has in others. For example, fearfulness of unfamiliar people. There is an 18-fold difference between the most timid breed and the bravest breed which are the Spanish Water Dog and the Staffordshire Bull Terrier, respectively, according to Salonen. And that does track with my experiences of Staffies in general. They love people. They want attention. They want it now. And they will literally climb into your lap to get it. Border Collies, on the other hand, had more compulsive staring and light or shadow chasing, behaviours that occurred more rarely in all other breeds. Border Collies, good for herding sheep, right? That's their purpose, yeah, that's what they're for. Which involves lots of staring at these black and white objects. Yep. Yeah. Mm. Yep. Mm. Okay. A closing quote from Professor Hannes Lohi, who led the study. Our findings indicate that unwanted behaviour seems to be inherited, which means that through careful breeding that relies on suitable behaviour indicators, the prevalence of such behaviour traits could be decreased. This would improve the quality of life not only for the dogs, but their owners too. Also, Maybe people who are leading certain lifestyles that would prohibit them from putting their dogs out in the fields to watch the wandering black and white objects for hours and hours on end maybe oughtn't get border collies as an option. It's quite important to select your dog based on what you need from it, so yeah. It just feels like if every single fireworks night in the UK where there's lots of fireworks going off there's so many adverts and so many campaigns to raise awareness of this is going to freak your pets right out. We often then classify that the pets get freaked out by the explosions they can't identify as a problem behaviour. That feels mean against dogs. Yeah, and we should take it upon ourselves to equip our animals to deal with that. Or protect them from it, I guess. What we should do is go to all of these 14,000 dogs and apologise for having them so slanderously maligned in a press release. We should go and say sorry to every single one of them. I've never met a Spanish water dog. They could be very timid. We might get along great. We'd have to find out. I honestly have only seen a picture of one following this press release and they look mostly like a cloud with a face. So They're a kind of retriever. I expect they would be quite friendly once you'd like got past their original worry. Now, whilst dogs being scared of loud noises probably oughtn't be news to anyone, it is something that's news to apparently everyone. The research published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, looking at swamp wallabies, a Australian marsupial, who apparently do child-rearing and birth in a way that no other creature on Earth does. Kangaroos and wallabies in general are known for usually having two babies on the go, one in the pouch, one in the uterus, growing an embryo, giving birth to it like, extremely prematurely by comparison to literally any other mammal, and having a long, 
period where it is a useless fleshy kidney bean feeding from milk in its mother's pouch. Swamp wallabies are notable because rather than popping one out and then getting pregnant with the next one, they get pregnant with the next one before giving birth to the previous one. They get double pregnant. They get double pregnant. And not just twins. No, they actually have two anatomically completely separated uteri and cervices connected to two ovaries by their oviducts. Two wombs. I've seen a rat be dissected and they have a bifurcated V-shaped uterus. But, you know, they grow one litter at a time. Hmm. They don't give birth out of one uterus while gestating fresh embryos in the other. Can you imagine how different the world would be if rats could double their output? Well, it wouldn't double their output, but it would speed it up slightly. Constant rats. There's already basically constant (laughs) rats, but not quite in the same sense as the swamp wallaby conveyor belt of baby. (laughs) (laughs) That is either a great name for a prog band or a terrible new addition to Family Fortunes. A prog band. Let's go prog band. Let's go a prog band. For more on great prog band names, listen to our previous episode with Jen Pirelli from the Fungi Town podcast. We got through a lot of quite fungi, funky kind of names. Anyway, there's a little bit of a breakdown of kind of the the family biology at the end of this press release. That pregnancies of eutherian mammals, which is most mammals, or the most taxonomically diverse of the three branches of mammals, greatly exceed the length of the estrus cycle. So during mammalian evolution, there's been a selection pressure to extend the duration of pregnancy. Think of the human menstrual cycle of about 28 days to the human pregnancy phase of about nine months. Now, I don't think this press release covers why a longer gestation than oestrus follows. Like, it all comes to the conclusion that there is a selection pressure towards longer pregnancy. You know, they compare the eutherian mammals to marsupials, where gestation in most macropodids, which is the family that kangaroos and wallabies belong to. It means Bigfoot, doesn't it? Yeah, (laughs) yeah. It's referring to their big feet. The gestation encompasses almost the entire duration of the estrus cycle, and the swamp wallaby takes it one step further with prepartum estrus, allowing its gestation to exceed the estrus cycle length. I don't understand what I'm supposed to conclude from this information. They seem to think it's extremely meaningful, but all it's telling me is most mammals ovulate more often than they have babies. Some mammals ovulate as often as they have babies. And the bit about selection pressure, I don't feel like that's explained in the least. Does it make it any better that the last sentence of this press release is about how many of them died in the Australian bushfires? Of course it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't like, well, the problem doesn't matter anymore because they're all dead. That's definitely not better. No, it's anyway. kind of awful. Anyway, if you are an evolutionary biologist who has an explanation as for what that causal relationship is, what the person writing this press release was trying to communicate to me and has missed, then please let us know. You can find us at EurekaNerdCast at gmail.com or forward slash EurekaNerd on Facebook at EurekaNerdCast on Twitter. Our next story comes from a little bit closer to home than Australia. 
from only the University of Exeter, it's a lot more of a convenient commute for us from Bristol, you might remember actually a couple of episodes ago we talked very briefly about the handedness of penguins. There's a really quick story about some penguins are more or less right or left-handed than others, but most aren't especially. I don't remember that at all. I must be going into the podcast fugue state. Merely, we've talked some real nonsense about a lot of stuff. Yeah, but you know the one where as soon as the microphone turns on, your brain just goes blank, and then it's an hour later, and you're turning it off, and I'm like, huh? Well, according to these fine people in Exeter, squirrels that are more strongly right or left-handed are less good at learning than those who are a bit ambidextrous. There is a video of some of the equipment used in the study that has come to this conclusion of a grey squirrel trying to get food with its mouth. But, and this is part of the methodology they've described, the bottle with the seeds inside where they're trying to get at to get to the food is a bit too small, so they have to put their hands in and kind of flap around. Their tiny little rodent hands. Little grabby hands. They have to reach in there and try and get a hold of a peanut so they can eat it. But the more strongly they are right or left-handed, the less they can deal with new changes. This is in contrast to the theory that being strongly lateralised, which is the term for handedness, for favouring one's right or left side, makes brains more efficient, with each hemisphere focusing on different tasks, which should result in better cognitive performance. And indeed, with fish and birds, there is evidence that strong lateralisation comes with that better cognition, but so far the data from mammal studies suggests a weak or negative correlation, as with these squirrels. The whole order of mammalia having these weird menstrual cycles and now weird lateralization, which I thought was chirality, but that might just be the molecular handedness of things. Uh, Yeah, yeah. I think that's molecular rather than... Yeah, But yeah, it turns out that mammals are a weird bunch, and we're probably the weirdest among them. Maybe me and you aren't the weirdest among them, perhaps the people who had to follow around 30 squirrels on the University of Exeter campus to see how they did at their peanut puzzle. Those might be the weirdest, but we do thank you for your service. I don't know, I think I'd be down for following squirrels (laughs) around a university campus to watch them doing peanut puzzles. (laughs) I once spent... A full half hour just standing, staring out of our front window at two extremely fat squirrels chasing each other around on the lawn. And I regret nothing. (laughs) It was November, that's why they were fat. Well, the nuts keep on coming with our next story. This one, co-authored by Ethel Villalobos, a researcher in the University of Hawaii at Manoa's College of Tropical Agriculture, the Human Resources Department of Plant and Environmental Protection Sciences, and lead of the UH Honeybee Project. You may have heard about the impact of almond farming on bees. I've heard about the impact of almond farming on the water table. Well, the impact on the bees is you need bees to pollinate your almonds, so bees from across most of the continental US get shipped to California every year to pollinate the almond trees, which is somewhat stressful for the bees. What's even more stressful for the bees is the fact that the almond trees are treated with quite a lot of pesticides. I am not a farmer. I am not an entomologist. But it does seem like somewhere between the farmers and the entomologists, the people who grow plants and the people who handle the bees are beekeepers, they could probably have agreed at some point, if you know we're going to be bringing our bees, don't coat your plants with 
the stuff that will kill the bees that you need to make more of your plants. Yeah, but then the almond farmers will be like, oh, but if we don't spray the pesticides on the plants, then they'll be eaten by beetles. You know, it's it's complicated. But probably we shouldn't be poisoning the bees we need, certainly. Especially the ones that you're trying to effectively employ. Yeah. So, in efforts to cut down on the bee reliance of almond farming and cut down on the almond-related stress of bees, people have been developing cultivars of almond which will self-fertilise. Which means you don't have to bring the bees in, the bees don't have to die. The bees don't get the stress of being taken to California, they don't get the stress of having to pollinate all these plants which may or may not murder them in their millions. However, Mm -hmm. this paper suggests that the Independence Almond, this self-fertilising cultivar, still performs better when bees are helping the pollination, with around a 60% increase in fruit set and a 20% increase in kernel yield. And without the income from shipping your bees halfway across the country to help with the almonds, lots of beekeepers wouldn't have enough reason to keep their bees with the impacts that comes with that. So what they've got is the strain that we were testing, the independence almond, does not work well enough to justify not having bees. And also not having bees would be a bad decision for everyone involved. Especially because using bees does mean that the almond farming process is incentivized to lower its pesticide use. If you take the bees out of the equation, they might go absolutely hog wild with pesticides and kill off all kinds of other native fauna which is necessary for like maintenance of ecosystems and stuff. So yeah, I mean just just Keep the bees. Keep the bees. Look after the bees. Low-stress bees. Relax the bees. Ease the bees. (laughs) (laughs) Now, that is the name of a... Lounge? Yeah. I'm thinking like lounge kind of bossa nova vibes. Yeah, maybe slightly like disco feel over the top of it. Mm -hmm. What kind of wah-wah guitar? Yeah, that stuff. Yeah. Okay. Mm. We did interestingly have a conversation about Manuka honey at lunchtime today someone asked what's special about it and someone else launched into an explanation of how the bees get individual massages (laughs) like the wagyu cows (laughs) and the response was are you being serious no obviously not I'm picturing like a tiny car wash for bees with the little rollers that come down. Oh, yeah, tiny rollers. Yeah. Yeah. Easier bees. Now, this does tie into a larger conversation uh, we've heard and we've had, certainly being around Bristol, the uh, liberal-leaning city that it is. There's a lot of vegans here, lots of people who want to not just reduce the amount of meat and dairy in their diet, but any food that relies on animals for its production. So things like honey. This then may or may not extend, depending on who you ask and how ready you are to have an argument, to avocados and almonds. Because if they are shipping the bees in to do the pollinating, that is animal labour. However, the plants wouldn't pollinate without animal labour of a kind to make the... well, to make the plants. So just how vegan you have to be 
to be entirely vegan is kind of, um, it's a little bit of a battleground. And especially if you're doing it because you have concluded that livestock-free farming is better for the environment, it's worth considering the impact of, like, shipping things from a long way away, which a lot of substitutes for meat and dairy that come up in Europe particularly have come from a long way away. Your soy milk, your almond milk. Plus then if there's the projected knock-on from this paper of not having as many almonds will disincentivize beekeepers to keep their bees, makes it not a financially viable option to be a beekeeper, then that will lead to the abandonment of those hives, I would presume, which is not good for the environment and not good for the animals involved and like that's that's worse than if you were to have the product of this animal labor yeah i mean like eat local much much as possible which does mean uh fewer almonds if you are for example in the uk a very very long way away from california speaking of eating locally that ties in very neatly to our next story where eating locally is something that not only humans do, but bees also do. Different types of bees also do. And when they talk about where they've been eating locally, depending on which type of bee it is, you might not always get the same answer. In fact, the inference from this study, although I'm not sure they've done all the numbers to back it up yet, is that the habits of the bee, rather than necessarily the species of the bee, is what impacts its dance dialect. Hopefully. Everyone listening to this has heard of, or at some point gleaned the information, that bees communicate things to their hives through waggle dances. I say I hope that you've heard this because it's a delightful piece of information to have. If you've not heard it and I get to be the person to tell you, you're in for a treat. Look up some videos of bees doing waggle dances in their hives. It's a way of basically buzzing their butts back and forth to suggest, turn left here, turn right there, go forward this far and then they'll do loops, they'll go back and forth to indicate distance and dimension, and it's a way that they can share really good spots for pollinating plants, for getting nectar, for making honey, for basically doing all of their bee business. And they share that with the rest of the hive so they can go off and all get a hold of that resource. All of their business. So yeah, if you have ever found a small trove of honeybee facts, you probably have heard about the waggle dance. What you won't have heard is that Depending on how far the residents of a given hive travel for food, distance over which they perform their waggle dances changes. And a PhD student named Patrick Cole, who is the first author of the publication, says, As the distance of the food source from the nest increases, the duration of wagging increases in a linear fashion. However, the increase is different for different bee species. And this was an experiment conducted in southern India, because, as Cole continues... India has the advantage that three honeybee species live in the same area, so their dance dialects can be easily compared. If they're all communicating to their hives about a resource that is the same distance away, the distance over which they perform their waggle dance is different in correlation with the distance that that species will travel to find food. If the food source was 800 metres away, an eastern honeybee, or Apis serrana, would have to do a lot more wagging than a dwarf honeybee, or Apis florea, which would have to do even more wagging than a giant honeybee, or Apis dorsata. The range of the three species is different. The eastern honeybee 
tends to have about a kilometer range, the dwarf honeybees about 2.5 kilometers, the giant honeybees about three kilometers. If the giant honeybee was having to waggle for as long as the eastern honeybee did to communicate a given distance, then at its maximum range, it would have to waggle Ages. forever. Infinite waggle. It would have to waggle for so long, and other bees would be like, heaven's sake brenda hurry up in the middle of the hive boogieing away going it's so bloody far to fly ah shake 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 you know like bees do oh she's been dancing blooming ages huh? out there for days so they condense the same amount less wagging which suggests more distance because that is their what they term the waggle dialect i'm instantly reminded of a part of Korean language, where yogi and chogi refer to there and here. So if you want to say it over there, you go yogi. If it's way over there, it's yogi. You extend just the phrase of there. Which is rather similar to a feature of British Sign Language, and I assume other sign languages? I don't know. But I know it is a feature of British Sign Language that the the way you scale things with your hands is in direct relation to the size of the thing you're trying to communicate. So you might just be saying, you know, a wave knocked the boat over, but you could exaggerate and say that a wave that's like, oh, ten times the size of the boat. Other examples in English include ages and ages, depending on how long you've waited for a bus. It is a fun quirk, I think, of brains as a whole. It does all somehow translate to our own lived experience. I think that's fun. We can look at bee brains and rat brains and dog brains and go, oh yeah, no, I get that. And if you would like to tell us about your brains, then you can tell us all about them at EurekaNerdCast at gmail.com. And if your brains have been especially tickled by what we do, then you can drop a donation our way at ko-fi.com forward slash EurekaNerd as well. That also helps offset the cost of producing and hosting the podcast. So, you know, it'd be nice. Make our brains go all tingly. Remember the walnut from last episode? makes the walnuts happy. We could even use those funds to fly to Sweden and pet 14,000 ducks. The dogs were in Finland. That won't stop me. (laughs) There's a few quick final stories just to tickle your brain a little bit more from Yale School of Public Health that moderate to high post-traumatic stress is common after exposure to trauma. Which I think we had established is the cause of post-traumatic stress. The trauma? The trauma. Hmm. And that from Boston Children's Hospital, child access prevention laws spare gun deaths in children. Fewer kids with guns means fewer kids using guns? Real brain teasers, these ones, huh? Wild stuff. But until next time, that's bye-bye from me. And goodbye from me. This podcast is brought to you by the Stimulus Network.